All right, thank you very much, Jake. Good morning, everyone. Man, you guys came out in the cold. I'm like really, really impressed. Uh, those of you who are online, you're probably smarter than the rest of us uh, staying where it's warmer. Uh, and also, happy Valentine's Day. I'm sure all of you woke up uh, just super excited. Uh, okay, no, I don't see too many people cheering that it's Valentine's Day. Okay, a couple people. Yeah, I like this. Uh, on this day, though, when our world is celebrating romantic love, I just really hope that today you'll just understand just how much God loves you, that he's not fickle like a romantic partner, that he is consistent, he is faithful, and he has loved you to the end. Um, a lot of churches today will be talking about love, and uh, we sort of will, but we're not going to talk about it like a lot of other churches because we've already been talking about love a lot uh, we started this three weeks ago with Vision Sunday. Uh, I shared how I felt that our vision for 2021 was to be a church marked by God's love, that the way our world is right now, what they desperately need is to see the love of Christ. And so we, we, that, that Vision Sunday then kicked off our email series uh, called How to Love. So if you don't get our weekly email, just send an email to riverwood at weareriverwood.org and we'll get you added to that. But we're just going through how to love. Uh, a couple weeks ago it was loving humbly. Uh, this past week it was loving selflessly. I can't remember what this coming week is going to be. But we're just looking at how did Jesus love? And so therefore, how can we bring that out into the world? And then two weeks ago we saw Jesus show love to a desperate mom healing her daughter. And then last week, we saw the very unique and personal love of Jesus, how he healed a, a deaf man and a blind man, again, uniquely and personally. So we've been talking about love a lot. And we're going to see Jesus display love, and, and not just in that unique and personal way, but on a very mass scale. He's going to do show love to a lot of people, in fact, 4,000 people to be exact. But rather than go the typical North American route and, and talk about love on that sort of scale today, we're going to go and we're going to actually look at a warning. Jesus is going to give a warning, which he doesn't do very often. And my fear is that if we went off and did the traditional route and talked about love, we would miss something very, very important. Because this warning actually is to protect you. Because if you ignore Jesus' warning, it will actually, actually affect the way you feel God's love. And it will actually build barriers between you and others and keep you from showing them God's love. So we need to see this warning today. And the warning is found in Mark chapter 8. So if you've got a Bible, please open up to Mark chapter 8. Uh, if you are a first-time guest with us, uh, again, as Jake said, thank you so much for coming. I really hope you'll fill out that connection card or send us an email so we can donate to Compassion on your behalf. Um, but also, we open up the Bible every single Sunday. So if you don't have a Bible, and, and by the way, to those of you online, sorry for the technical issues that we're having. Sorry we can't put the scripture up on the screen. Hopefully you can kind of see what's behind me, but I realize it's going to be really small. So I really encourage you, get a Bible. Now, at Riverwood, we don't care if that's a digital Bible or a paper Bible. We just want you to have one. Uh, the advantage of being online is you can just go over and click on the Bible tab and navigate to Mark chapter 8, but we want you to have one. So download a Bible to your phone or ask us. We will give you a paper Bible. We've got some high-quality Bibles that we'd love to give you because it will last you for years, but we want you to have one because we believe that by opening it up here on Sunday, it just makes it that much easier to open it up on Monday. So we want you to have a scripture. We're going to do about half of chapter 8 today, uh, so as we get ready to go into it, let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I just pray that this morning on this frigid Valentine's Day, on this day that we're having some online technical issues, on a, on a day where many of us maybe have all sorts of things happening in our hearts and our heads, that right now you would just cut through all of that and you would speak to our hearts and our minds. 
God, I believe that you love every single person that is listening to this, whether they're with us in person, they're joining us online, or they're listening to the podcast later in the week, that you love them. As we saw last week, uniquely and personally. But Jesus, you give us a warning. And some of us, we're, we're being tempted into these areas. And so would you speak to us loud and clear? Would you help us to not fall into these traps so that we might understand your love fully and therefore go and be able to show your love fully? So God, I just pray that you would be our teacher now. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. All right, again, we're going to do about half of Mark 8, so we're going to break it up into three chunks. So let's do the first 10 verses of chapter 8. So join me, Mark 8, verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, if you were part of the Riverwood family last fall, you may be thinking to yourself, wait, haven't we already studied this? The answer would be, eh, sort of. We, back in chapter 6, on October 4th, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, this week is the feeding of the 4,000. Now, there are a lot of similarities between them. So many that some scholars think that this is actually just the same story, just told twice. But because as we're going to see towards the end of this, our passage today, there are actually two feedings. And, and there are some differences between them. When we were, came to the feeding of the 5,000, we discovered that Jesus and his disciples were getting away to be alone. It, Jesus was mourning the loss of his cousin, John the Baptist. We saw him get beheaded by Herod. Uh, but then we see the disciples at that same time coming back from traveling. They had been out preaching the gospel. They'd been telling people that the kingdom of God was at hand. So they're tired from their travels. Jesus is mourning the loss of John the Baptist. So Jesus says, hey, let's get away. So the idea was to go into the mountains, just into the hills, be isolated where they could mourn, they could rest, they could tell Jesus all the things they learned. He could continue to teach them. But when they arrived to the location, there was a crowd there. And it says that Jesus, in Mark 6, 34, it said that Jesus saw them like sheep without a shepherd. And so instead of dismissing the crowd and going up into the hills and get some isolated time, Jesus actually takes the time to minister. He sets aside his own desires to meet their needs. He heals them, he teaches them, and eventually we see him feed them. And so what we saw out of that message is that love is rarely convenient. That in order for us to love like Jesus loved, sometimes it means we have to set aside our own selfish desires so that we can meet the needs of those around us. Well, this week, Jesus and his disciples aren't coming to a place to get away. The crowd has now found them and has gathered. And it says that Jesus himself says that they've been with him for three days. It's kind of like they're holding a big conference. You know, 4,000 people have come to attend this conference. Jesus is the main stage speaker. 
Think about the draw that Jesus must have been. The people are sleeping outside. That There's no place around. They're out in the wilderness. And, and Jesus is so attractive that they begin to just forget to even eat. Any food that they would have brought with them, they probably only brought maybe a day's worth. Maybe if they were a really good Boy Scout or a mom, they probably would have brought two days. But three days worth? No, they didn't have coolers like us. And so some of these people haven't eaten for a day. Some of them maybe not for two. Some of them maybe brought nothing with them, and they haven't eaten for three days. That's how much of a draw Jesus was. They were willing to forgo food just to be around this guy. But Jesus realizes it's time to wrap up the conference, send everyone home. But if he sends them home, they'll faint from hunger. Some of them might die. And so Jesus, like, hey, I want to have compassion on them. I want to send them with a parting gift. I want to give them some food. Now, because of what happened in chapter 6, you would think the disciples would go, well, Jesus, we've got seven loaves of bread here. Why don't you take these and multiply them just like you did for the feeding of the 5,000? But they don't. They say to him, "Uh, how are you going to do that? Like, we're out in a desolate place. Where are we going to get enough food for all these people? It's like they forgot what took place and have just reverted back to earthly thinking. Now, my temptation is to kind of look at them and roll my eyes and go, oh, what foolish disciples. But to do so is to basically point the finger at me. Because I've done the exact same thing in my life. In fact, I was thinking through, there was a time where Leanne and I, when we came back from Venezuela, many of you know that we served at a missionary kid's school for a couple of years. When we came back, God provided for us in miraculous ways. I mean, just miraculous And yet, several years later, when God calls us on this church planning journey, I doubted that God would provide for me and my family. I'm just like the disciples. I mean, they they just months prior saw Jesus take five loaves and feed 5,000 people. And now here they are with a slightly smaller crowd. And and yet, they start going, well, how are we going to do this? They've reverted back to earthly thinking. Jesus, though, goes ahead and says, how many loaves do you have? Seven, takes them, breaks them up. Oh, a few fish. Ah, oh, let's thank God for these two. Break those up, pass this out. They gather up the leftovers and they have seven baskets left over. But then as soon as they gather up the leftovers, Jesus does something interesting. He then dismisses the crowd, which is what he said he was going to do. But then he tells his, Bible, his disciples, all right, get in the boat, let's go. And they take off and they head to this area called Dalmanutha. Let's see what happens in Dalmanutha, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. If you've been around church much, you've probably heard this word Pharisee. Many of you probably have an idea of you know what a Pharisee is. But just in case you don't, I I really like how the Net Bible, the Net Bible is the New English Translation. They've got these like 60,000 study notes. I like what their study note about Pharisees said. It says that Pharisees were members of one of the most important and influential religious and political parties of Judaism in the time of Jesus. According to Josephus, there were more than 6,000 Pharisees at about this time. They were strict and zealous adherents to the laws of the Old Testament and to numerous additional traditions, such as angels and bodily resurrection. 
Now, you noticed I highlighted there strict and zealous adherence to the law of the Old Testament. We're going to be coming back to that. All right? I just want to put that in your mind because uh, we're going to come back to that a little later. Now, if you're kind of new to Christianity, uh, new to uh, church, uh, you might start figuring out that if, if we talk about Pharisees for very long, you're going to see uh, we talk about them in a very negative sense. In fact, the word Pharisees almost become like this derogatory term, referring to anyone who you know, either is very uh, hip- hypocritical in, in their way, or they, they seem that they act like they're better than everyone else. And so we say, oh man, they're such a Pharisee. Now that judgment, a lot of that comes from what we see in the scriptures, including what we're seeing right here. But for just a moment, I'm going to come to the defense of the Pharisees. You see, part of the reason the Pharisees had this strict and zealous adherence to the Old Testament is because they had a high view of the Scripture. They took it very, very seriously. They didn't just see it as like a guidebook that they could kind of pick and choose. No, they took it and studied it in detail, which means out of their high view of Scripture, those 6,000 Pharisees, as they would lead in the temples, would teach from that perspective to the people. And so many of the people would begin to adopt the same idea and the same reverence for the, the Jewish Scriptures which means they would have been very open to hearing about these prophecies about the Messiah. So I believe God very strategically put the Pharisees in place and in power so that they could inevitably and and probably accidentally prepare the people for the coming of Jesus. But while that was the upside of their high view of Scripture, there was a downside. The downside was that their high view of Scripture led them into an extreme legalism. Now, we're, we're going to talk about this legalism uh, a, a bit later, but you, you need to know that they saw things very, very narrowly. In fact, they had such a tight box that if anyone did not see things exactly like them, they questioned their faith. Thought maybe they didn't even know God, and God definitely did not love them. That is why they're standing there with Jesus saying, give us a sign. Because Jesus does not teach like they do. He doesn't seem to interpret the scriptures exactly as they do. He didn't go through their schools like they would expect him to. And so therefore, they've got questions about this guy. Now, they've heard the rumors. They've seen the way he teaches. They've seen the way crowds are drawn to him. But they're not sure. So they need proof. They want to test him. They want a sign. Think about how ridiculous that is. Just a day before, Jesus fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. A few months before that, it was 5,000 people with five loaves. We, last week, we saw him heal a, a blind man and a deaf man. A week before that, it was a, a mom's uh, demon-possessed little girl. We've seen him heal a, a, a woman who was bleeding internally for 12 years, and all the woman did was touch the fringe of his robe. We've seen him raise a little girl from the dead. We've seen him stop a storm with nothing but a word. And yet, these guys are standing there saying, we want a sign. Maybe it's because they didn't see all those things in person. They've heard the rumors and they're thinking, it's just magic tricks. We want to see it for ourselves here now. Why? Because we are the Pharisees. We know the scriptures. We've got a lock on it. This is our faith. You're threatening it. You've got to prove to us you're from God. So they make the demand. But then did you see Jesus' response? It's right there in verse 12 says, and he sighed deeply in his spirit. He sighed deeply. Like, this is the type of sigh that comes with an eye roll. 
This is the type of sigh that comes with you just shaking your head. This is the type of sigh where you rub your temples. This is the kind of sigh that my Kansas City chief-loving son was expressing all through the Super Bowl as the Tampa Bay Buccaneer defense was just pouring through the offensive line and hounding Patrick Mahomes. Like he just sighed the whole entire night. This is a sigh of disappointment, a sigh of frustration, a sigh of disbelief. Like I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe you're asking for a sign. I mean, haven't they at least heard his teaching? Can't they see the way he teaches and realize he's expounding the Old Testament, their Jewish scriptures, in a way that no one else ever has, even if they didn't believe all the miracles? Surely their high view of scripture would help them see, but it didn't. And that's why Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit. And as he sighs, he says, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to give you a sign. Because think about it. Jesus does not do miracles to wow people. So he's definitely not going to do a miracle because they demand it of him. All throughout his book so far, these first eight chapters, we've seen Mark portraying Jesus as the king. The king of the kingdom of God. So who are these Pharisees to come and demand the king do something for them? They're acting as if they are the authority, not realizing they're standing in the midst of God himself, Jesus, God in the flesh, God the Son, who created all things, including them. So Jesus just sighs deeply and goes, no, I'm not going to do it. No sign will be given. Now, I realize some of you are probably familiar with this same exact story found in the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, we see Matthew add an extra phrase. He says that Jesus says one more thing, and that is that no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. If you're not familiar with the story of Jonah, he was an Old Testament prophet who God said, I want you to go to this place and I want you to, to tell them to repent of their sin. Well, Jonah hated those people. I mean, he was racist. He was discriminatory. He did not want to see God do anything for them. So he headed the opposite direction. Jumps on a ship, heads across the Mediterranean Sea, fleeing God's call on his life. Well, God sends a storm. And then Jonah realizes this is from God. So he tells the uh, sailors, you got to throw me overboard. As soon as he gets thrown overboard, the storm stops. And then suddenly a whale or a great fish, some big beast swallows him. And Jonah was inside the belly of the whale for three days before it vomited him up on shore. I can't imagine what he smelled like after that. Well, Jesus said that he would give the sign of Jonah. That just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale buried for three days, Jesus himself would die on the cross and be buried and then three days later, come out alive. Now, it really bothers some people that Mark doesn't have that phrase, and Matthew does. They see this as a contradiction. Because either Mark's leaving this off, and therefore we can't quite trust him if he's going to be selective and leave these things out, or Matthew's making it up, and we can't quite trust him because he's adding these things. There's no contradiction here, though. Both are true. Because both of them record Jesus saying, no sign will be given. And sure enough, Jesus gets into the boat without giving them a sign and takes off. And yet, we also see Jesus later give the sign of Jonah by dying on the cross and being buried for three days and coming out alive. So Jesus sighs deeply, no sign will be given, and he and the disciples get back in the boat and take off. Now, have you ever had a conversation 
like just a couple days later, you're still thinking about it. It's just bothering you. Like you just can't seem to shake it. Like you, you, you think about it as you drive, you think about it as you're going to sleep, you think about it as you're standing in the lunch line at school. Like the, the conversation just will not go away. You keep replaying it. I think that's what's going on with Jesus. Because of what we see happen in the boat. Pick it up in verse 14. Now they, the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he, Jesus, cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. See, the conversation's been playing in his mind. So he says, Watch out for them. Well, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do, do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, uh, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? See, Jesus begins to give this warning. And he ends up using this word leaven. It simply means yeast. Well, the disciples know that you need yeast in order to make bread. And these guys are probably like me. They're probably hungry all the time. They're thinking, oh man, can we like pull out the bread? But one or two of them was probably in charge of making sure that they had food. But we'll just pretend it was Thomas. And Thomas, at the feeding of the 4,000, was so busy looking at that cute girl, he just kind of forgot to grab some of the leftover baskets. And so when they get in the boat and they take off, realize, oh, we've only got one loaf. And, and I used to think when, when they would say one loaf, I would imagine like our bread, you know, like good, you know, 14, 16, 18 inches, or maybe like Italian bread, you know, a couple of feet long, like all big. No, their loaves were like six inches. And, and it was only like an inch or two thick. Like, like if they broke it up to pass to the, the, among the 13 of them, they're not going to get a meal out of this. We're talking like barely a snack. So they're upset. And now here's Jesus who's upset about the conversation he just had with the Pharisees. And now he's talking about yeast and leaven. He must be upset that we don't have bread. Great. Now he's mad at us too. And Jesus just looks at him and shakes his head. Thinks, man, you guys are denser than bread that doesn't have yeast. Basically he says, guys, don't you remember? I, I, I took five loaves and I fed 5,000 people. Just a couple days ago, I took seven loaves and I fed 4,000. And so without saying it, he's basically indicating, so don't you think I could take the one loaf and like multiply it as if it was made with yeast and I could feed all of you and we'd have enough left over, we could feed the ducks. Stop worrying about the bread. In other words, Jesus is communicating something else. We see it in verse 15. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate. He cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. When Jesus uses that word leaven, meaning yeast, he's using it as a word picture. It's this idea that just as yeast is this microscopic fungus that spreads throughout the dough, causing it to rise, that there's something about the mentality, the worldview, the philosophy, the teaching of both the Pharisees and Herod that if you allow it into your life, it will pervade and get into all these areas. And unlike creating awesome bread, it's going to ruin your life. So he's saying, watch out, beware of this yeast. But what was so dangerous about their yeast? Well, what we're going to see is both the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod have to do with power, about misplaced and misused 
power. First, the uh, yeast of the Pharisees. Their power was religious power. Remember back to that net Bible study note. The, the Pharisees had these strict and zealous adherence to the Old Testament law. Well, that strict adherence, it led them to legalism. Uh, legalism is taking the tiniest detail of the rules and is holding to it by the strictest of definitions. And you have to do it to the very tiniest bit in order to prove to God you're worthy of heaven. Or to prove to others just how holy you are. Or it's to prove to yourself you're good enough. You are in control. In other words, you're trying to show I have power over myself. I have power over others. I have this power even before God. We got a small glimpse of this legalism back in chapter 7. Jesus ends up having a conversation with the Pharisees, a different group. They were upset because Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands exactly right. We talked about this little hand-washing ritual, which actually did no cleansing at all of your hands. And yet, they questioned the faith of the disciples because they didn't go through this hand-washing ritual the exact right way. We also saw how they washed pots a certain way. And oftentimes, it was just washing the outside. They didn't actually wash the inside. Again, these were not for hygienic purposes. It was purely for worship. And yet, if you didn't do it their way, they questioned whether you actually even knew God and whether God actually even loved you. But this didn't just go into the way they used water. Their legalism extended to all areas. Like it extended into their usage of food, extended into their clothing type, it extended into their worship, it extended into their rest. I mean, it extended into everything. And if you didn't do it exactly like them, if you didn't eat their foods, wear their clothes, worship in the right way, attend Sabbath on the, you know, go to the temple on the Sabbath, they questioned your faith. It meant you weren't in the box. So therefore you were out. And you were either out of the temple or maybe you were just completely out of God's favor. And what happened by teaching this extreme legalism, they began to control the people. They began to tell people, here's what you can and cannot do. And if you didn't do it exactly like they said, you're out again. It was about power. Now, it's easy for us to go, oh, man, that, that legalism is kind of bad. But that was back then. And unfortunately, that legalism has, has extended to our day today. Uh, when I used to be active on Twitter, I've taken a, a big break since the 21 days uh, of prayer back in January. Um, but when I was fairly active, I remember stumbling onto this Twitter account that did, pretty much did nothing but post videos of preachers. And it was a particular brand of preaching. And as I watched a few of these, I started catching on to a very recurring theme. These guys preached against all sorts of things. I, they preached against pastors wearing skinny jeans they uh, preached against women with their hair down. They preached against Marvel movies. I don't know how you could do that. They preached against all sorts of things. And they would pound their pulpits as the sweat's pouring off of them. As they're spitting everywhere. This is the way to do it. And if you didn't do it like them, you were out. But Aaron, that's, that's that group. I mean, that, that's just you know, a small little tribe of Christianity. Yeah, but, but Jesus, he, he gives this warning to his disciples who were right there in the boat with him. He's not even saying, hey guys, 
don't listen to those Pharisees. He's saying, no, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees because it could get into you. And so if he's warning them, I think he's warning us. So, so let me give you a pretend example of how this sort of legalism could seep into even our lives or our church. When uh, we opened up, uh, my, when I opened up my sermon, uh, we got ready to come to, to Mark. I told you to open up your Bible because I said that, you know, it's, when, when you open it up on Sunday, it makes it a little easier to open it up on Monday. That's because I want you to read your Bible every day. I mean, we live in a world that is preaching to us constantly. It's preaching to us through YouTube, through Netflix, through advertisements, through the conversation at, at, um, in the break room or at the lunch table. Like, you are hearing messages constantly. And so there would be some wisdom to sit down with your Bible every day and at least hear from the voice of God, to let God speak into your life, to help you navigate through this culture. So there's wisdom there. But legalism takes that wisdom and twists it, saying that if you don't read your Bible every day, God's not pleased with you. Like if you don't read a certain amount every day, God might not let you in. I, I want you to know, it's an absolute lie. When you get to heaven, God will not pull out the log, but go, okay, let's see, how much did you read in your lifetime? Oh, you fell a few minutes short. I'm so sorry. No. Your salvation and your standing before God comes only through Jesus. You see, if legalism worked, Jesus does not have to die on the cross. The fact that Jesus goes to the cross shows us we can't do anything to save ourselves. Legalism falls short. So there may be temptation to do all these rules to, hey, I read my Bible every single day. I wear the right clothes. I listen to the right music. I don't drink certain things. I do it all correct. And yet when you stand before God, he's not going to sit there and be impressed. The first thing he wants to know is, did you put your faith in my son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sin? Now, this doesn't mean we don't read our Bible. It doesn't mean we don't do these things. But the motivation has to change. The, The Pharisees, their motivation was to try to prove something to God or prove something to other people or prove something to themselves. But when you're motivated by the gospel, when you realize who Jesus is and what he's done, everything changes. And you're no longer trying to do these things to prove anything to anyone. You're doing them because you already realize God loves me. So he warns his disciples, don't give in to the yeast of the Pharisees. Don't give in to the draw of legalism. Now, I think there's another piece of their yeast. We we see it in verse 11. It's where the, the Pharisees look at Jesus and they say, give us a sign. I realize that I've done that to God. Some of you have probably done that. Where you sense God saying, here's what I want of you. Maybe it's because you were reading in your Bible and and there was something that just made you a little uncomfortable. You didn't really like it. And so you demand some sort of sign. Like, is this really what you want me to do? Or maybe you sense God saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go help that neighbor. I want you to go start that ministry. I want you to give this amount of money. Oh, God, I, I don't know, because I, I was going to use that money for a new carpet. You know, I, I don't really like that neighbor. Like, I, I don't know that I can do that. So, God, if that's what you want me to do, give me a sign. If you're familiar with the story of Gideon, God calls Gideon to a particular task, and Gideon's like, ah, I can't do it. 
So he's like, all right, God, give me a sign. Here's a fleece. He throws out this piece of sheepskin. Like, God, make everything around it wet, but leave that dry. And God does it. And he goes, oh, okay, that was easy. God, make the fleece wet and everything else dry. And God does it. God, sometimes out of his mercy, out of his love for you, will answer your silly request. He'll give you that confirmation. But I'm just going to tell you right now, he doesn't have to. He's God. He does not have to give in to your demand. Why? Because he's already given you the greatest sign you will ever see. He's already given you the sign of Jonah. Jesus went to a cross and rose again from the dead. What more do you need? And if you do feel like you need more, God's already given you a whole bunch of stuff to help lead you and guide you and navigate through. So he doesn't have to give you anything else. Because the fear is, if you go to God demanding something from him, and he doesn't do it because he's God, and he knows what's best, you end up feeling like, well, then I'm a failure, or God doesn't love me, and all of that is bunk. He loves you. He loves you to the full. He's shown it through the cross. So don't give in to the temptation of legalism, but also don't give in to the temptation to demand a sign from God, because he's already shown his love for you to the full. One of the dangers, if you succumb to this legalism, is it will build a barrier between you and God, and it will build a barrier between you and others. If you live out this kind of legalism, or you end up living, demanding these sort of signs, it will build this barrier between you and God, and you're not going to be able to feel and sense his love for you. Likewise, if you live out this sort of legalism, it builds barriers between you and others because either they're not doing it as well as you, so therefore you're better than them, or you end up being jealous that someone, as they seem to be doing it better than you, and you feel like an absolute failure. As the cross is completely level. Jesus. Don't succumb to legalism. Don't succumb to demanding a sign. Don't succumb to the draw of religious power. But remember, there was another warning. It was about the yeast of Herod. We talked about Herod uh, last fall when we uh, looked at the uh, death of John the Baptist in chapter 6. But what we saw was that there were actually a couple of different Herods mentioned in the scripture. This particular Herod that Jesus is talking about and who was over uh, John's death was Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was actually the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great would have been the Herod the scriptures talk about when Jesus was born. But when Herod the Great passed away, again, remember, Israel is underneath Roman rule. The Roman Empire is there. So really, the king is Caesar. And when Herod the Great passes away, Caesar splits up the region that Herod the Great was over and gives it to his three sons. And one of those was Herod Antipas. Now, the scriptures call these Herods King Herod. But again, because they're under the Roman Empire, they weren't really kings over their own kingdom. They were these sort of semi-autonomous leaders allowed authority over their region. The, the correct term for them would be tetrarch, or it, to put it in modern-day words, they would be like a governor. So they had some autonomy. They led and could make decisions, but they still were underneath the rule of another. So they were not a true king. So why did they demand to be called King Herod? Because of the draw of political power. We see the temptation the spread of this yeast every four years in America. 
we, we regularly see these political, these presidential candidates telling us, here's what I will do. They try to portray this so that they can get your vote and then they can be put in power. Now, it used to be that our presidential candidates would say, here's my plan. And it was basically trying to compare and contrast the different plans and them saying, here's why my plan is better. But what's been happening the last few years is it's gotten to the place of not just, hey, here's my plan, here's how it's better. They began to say, here's their plan and their plan is evil. Not just wrong, not just different, actually evil. And if their plan gets put in place, our nation is ruined. So you cannot vote for them. You must vote for me. And what happens is we end up portraying those sort of Americans, not as Americans who think differently, but actually as the enemy who need defeated. No wonder our politics are so divided. But we give in to the temptation. We think if I vote for this person, if this person's in power, if this person's in the Oval Office, everything will be better. And so half the nation ends up happy and the other half ends up mad. And we get wider and wider and wider. And what I've started to see is that this yeast doesn't just spread at the national level. It's starting to come down to the state level. It's starting to happen at the community level. And it gets down into churches. I can tell you stories of churches that have crumbled because of power grabs. It had nothing to do with Jesus. Nothing to do with the gospel. Nothing about loving people. It was purely about power. It was because of things like that that as I was growing up feeling this call into ministry, I did not want to work in a church. To me, the church was nothing but politics. And I don't like those head games. I stink at it. So I, I wanted nothing to do with it. I was happy to serve as an overseas missionary. I would have gladly worked for a parachurch organization. It took God completely recrafting my heart and changing my attitude for me to even begin to say yes to working in a church. Because I've seen the political power, that yeast, get into this arena and wreak havoc. I'm telling you, legalism, it will ruin your relationship with God and others. But if you want to do it even faster, jump on the political track. And it will ruin your relationship with God and others even faster. This is why Jesus is warning his disciples. The culture around them was saying, hey, you want power, you want joy, you want to really live a full life? It's in politics. Now, I'm not saying that we, we ignore politics, ah, it's all bad. No, we need followers of Jesus in there being salt. But we cannot buy into the lie that all of our problems will be solved if we just get the right person in the White House. So Jesus warns us, don't give in to the yeast of the Pharisees and don't give in to the yeast of Herod. Don't succumb to the temptation of legalism and don't succumb to the, the temptation of politics. Why? Because Jesus knew that our true joy would not be found in either place. He knew that those things would actually crumble our relationship with God and others. For him to give us life and give it in the full he had to show us that power happens in a completely different way. Because you see, the cross shows the emptiness of legalism. See, legalism tries to make you think that you can get to God on your own. The cross says you can't. 
And then Jesus, who is the king, who's all-powerful, like he has authority over even death itself. What does he do with that sort of power? He heals. He feeds. He teaches. He points people to God. He calls people to repentance. And eventually he goes to the cross and he dies. Herod was not going to die for the people. The Pharisees would not have laid down their rules for anything. But Jesus lays down his life for us. That's what you do with power. You lay it down for others. And as you lay it down, you end up helping people find that connection with God and they find their connection with others. So on Valentine's Day, you want to talk about love? Lay down your power. Give it up. Because by doing so, you point people to a God who loves them to the full and you help them feel more connected than ever before. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to be this type of church. That we would be a church that loves in such a way that we don't try to get power for ourselves, rather we lay it down. God, I pray that you would protect us from the, the draw towards legalism. That, that we wouldn't succumb to the idea that, that if we listen to the right music or we read the right Bible translation or we wear the right kind of clothes or we help little old ladies across the street, that if we do all the right things, that somehow you'll be more impressed, we'll be closer to you, and, and, and therefore we can prove something to ourselves and others. Instead, God, help us to come to a place of complete brokenness, of realizing we can't do anything in and of ourselves. We can't do it on our own. We need you. And that's why we say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you went to the cross. You, the one who had all power and all authority, went and laid down your life. You, the only person who had never sinned, went and died in a sinner's place. So we say thank you. So Jesus, protect us. Draw us to you. Help us to be these people who live like you and love like you so that we can bring your grace and your gospel to a world that desperately needs you because they are trying to find their joy through legalism. They're trying to find their joy through politics. They're trying to find their joy through all these things. They're succumbing to this yeast and it is corrupting them. But Jesus, you are a refining fire. And so God, I, I pray first that you would, you would refine us, that you would change us from the inside out, that you'd help us to, to, to give these things over to you and as you refine us, that you would then use us to bring your refiner's fire to others. And we would show them how much you love them. And they would see that their legalism doesn't work, that the draw to politics will not solve the world's issues, that only through Christ will they find what they're truly looking for. So Jesus, we ask for these things in your precious name. Amen. I want to give you time to pray, to reflect and so I'm going to invite the ushers to pass the uh, elements. If you're joining us online and you have your elements at any time during the song, you can partake. Same with you in the room. If you are joining us and you are not a follower of Jesus, I just want to say thanks for coming. I'm glad you're here. But I just want you to know that the big thing right now is not these elements. It's not about bread. It's not about juice. It's about Jesus. We want you to understand this gospel, that Jesus came to free you. I don't want you to fall for the legalism that if you take this bread and you drink this cup, that somehow God will be happier with you. I want you to realize God loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. And so it isn't about you trying to get that bread and that, that, that juice into you. It's about you surrendering your life completely to Jesus.
And so I, if that's you, I encourage you, take this next moment to just pray. As Jake and the band lead us in this next song, may you come to the cross. May you look at the sign of Jonah. May you see what Jesus did for you. And would you give your life to him? If you were already a follower of Jesus, if there was something that was said during the message that convicted you, would you confess that to God? If you sensed God calling you to something, would you say yes to him? Would you allow these elements to remind you Jesus died on a cross for the forgiveness of your sin, that he rose again on the third day? And may this next moment give you a chance to measure God's love for you by the cross and his power by the resurrection. Let us do this now in remembrance of him.